Turn to John chapter 20. We're going to start reading in 19, though. We're going to read, uh, start reading in 19, verse 16b, which, uh, if you're in the ESV, is right under the giant title, The Crucifixion. And if you start chapter 20 without reading the previous part, it, it feels a little bit like dropping your car in the wrong gear. It, it just it jerks a little too much. All right, this is God's Word. It was written a long time ago, but it was written with you in mind today, this very moment. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I'm King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them in four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and that he knows that he's telling the truth. Verse 
that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his, away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give life and light to your word. We know the whole book is about Jesus. Here we hear it so explicitly clearly. May we see Christ and believe. Help us in our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I want to take you back to middle school. Delightful time of middle school. And depending on the type of student you are, it's going to be one of two kind of experiences. For those of you that were more, we'll say, diligent students, it was that moment in middle school where you got your first really bad grade. You know, maybe it was the test that you didn't know you had, you didn't study for, you didn't prepare for, whatever it was, and you came in and the teacher handed your grade back and you looked at it and you thought, a D? I never had a D before. I've never scored a D. And that, that's the first thing that runs through your head. And the second thing that ran through most of your heads was, my parents are going to kill me. 
And the worst part is, at least for me, it was probably the case for you, that happened early in the day. So you had that just tremendous moment of all day lingering in the back of your head, oh no, I'm dead when I get home. And depending on the type of family you had, maybe you got home, and then when you got home, you got this from your mom. Wait till your father gets home. I've got to talk to him. And the misery was prolonged. Maybe you weren't quite as good of a student. Maybe for you, it was when you got in trouble. You got sent to the principal's office, and oh no, here I am. I've got another demerit, another mark, another whatever it is, and I've got to tell my parents when I get home. Maybe you don't relate to either of those. Maybe for you, it's more as an adult, that that moment where you realize you're going to be tragically late for an event. You know that moment where your stomach kind of drops and twists simultaneously? I don't know how that works, but it does. And you're like, oh, oh, I'm going to be like 40 minutes late for this thing. And, And each minute seems to get longer and longer. It's, it's the only way known to prolong time is to be running tragically late. It feels awful. Okay, all of those are really silly illustrations, but they all get at the same kind of feeling. Misery prolonged by forced patience. That's kind of what I'm describing is this idea of of being miserable, having been filled with dread, but having it prolonged with a sense of of forced patience, something that you yourself can't control. And if you think about what I'm talking about is about this big, where we pick up in John chapter 20 is about this big. You see, these disciples have been with Christ for years They've walked away from their professions. They've walked away from their livelihoods. They've walked away from all of their kind of commitments to everything else in the world. And they have, by human standards, squandered their life on this man named Jesus. And as Jesus and his ragtag group of bozos kind of generate notoriety, they gain more and more people and more and more people. And specifically, they gain, as we're going to find out in the last part of this book, they gain faithful women. Wonderful, lovely women who believe, who trust, who obey. But all of this ministry of Jesus, all of his time on earth, all of his teaching has been building to kind of one transitional statement where Peter and the disciples, they they begin to realize, you know, Jesus isn't just really smart. I mean, he is smart, but he's not really smart. In fact, the reason why, he's actually God. And the way the Gospels tell it, all of them kind of arrive at this moment when when the disciples figure out this Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus changes his entire ministry. No longer instructing them, no longer going around and feeding the hungry and healing the sick. Instead, he makes a beeline, a, a, a direct path to Jerusalem. And along the way, he manufactures a situation. He's sovereign, he's in charge, he's in control. He manufactures a situation that will force the entire thing to a head. He resurrects a dead guy. And everything's different. Wait, so so this, this homeless carpenter kid 
This guy who's barely an adult by Jewish standards has power over life and death. He, he talks to dead people and they come out of the tomb. We can't handle this. And so he walks into Jerusalem. And as he comes in with the dead guy in tow, in essence, everybody freaks out and they're like, this is the king. We're going to proclaim him king. And they have this tremendous triumphal entry, a coronation event to recognize he is the king of the Jews fully expecting him to mount a rebellion and to overthrow Rome. And what does this king of the Jews do? He he marches his tremendous following directly to the temple, not to Rome. And he throws out all the money changers. And all of those people falsifying worship and contaminating the temple. And then he goes home and everybody's really confused. In fact, actually, not even really confused. The crowd gets really angry. They get livid because this one whom they thought was their hope to defeat Rome has instead defeated their own self-righteousness, and they're furious. And so at the inner workings of the Jews themselves, the leaders of the Jewish people, they manufacture for Rome to have him killed. And in 19, we picked up that story. The true recollection of how the Lord of life himself was executed. And interesting how John tells the story, highlighting every step of the way, how scripture is fulfilled. Scripture is fulfilled. Scripture is fulfilled. Even to the point where he gives up his spirit. They did not take it from him. But one of the things I didn't kind of zone in on last time, hone in on, uh, verse 31, he, John picks up a theme for us in 31. Jesus is killed, but it's the day of preparation. It's, it's the day before the Sabbath. And so he's beginning to set up a tremendous contrast that we as Americans kind of, we don't entirely pick up on. Most of us are not Jewish in the room. We have some. But he's contrasting the way life is and the way life will be. Verse 31, he clues us in again. Jesus dies on the day of preparation. It's the day before the Sabbath. It's Friday. It's the day before the Jews have their worship on Saturday. It's the day before the high feast of all of Judaism. Remember, this is in the middle of Passover week, and this Sabbath, this Saturday, is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It is the Passover Saturday of all Passover week. It is their biggest, highest, most special, most holy. It is the day. And it's why when they ask Pilate to be nice to the Jews, he's actually like, you know what? I love making you guys angry. I love trolling you because I hate you with all my being, but I'm not even that bad. You want to get the bodies down before the Sabbath of all Sabbaths, before Passover of all Passover? Sure, do it. And so John, again, highlights that he's going to get get there a big deal. Let's them take the body down on that day. They take it to the tomb and they dress it. This is going to be incredibly important as well. Joseph asks for the body, Pilate gives it, Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices. 
so that as they wrap the body, they place a wrap, they put spices on it, they place a wrap, they put spices on it, they place a wrap, they put spices on it. So his body, which has lost much weight because of blood loss, gains mass from the spice and the wrap. And after his body is prepared, it's placed in the tomb and the stone, which would have been in a shallow kind of groove, is rolled in front. We know from the other Gospels it's sealed, it's uh, closed, it is secured, and is guarded. And then John, the master storyteller, stops. And he lets it sit in that place of misery, that place of angst for all the disciples that here is the one that we thought was the Lord of life. We thought he was God and now he's dead. How can God be dead? We're so confused. What about our faith? Are they going to kill us? The disciples go into hiding the amount of tears that are shed in between 19 verse 42 and 20 verse 1. All of that is, I love it. In my Bible, it's a space about a quarter of an inch. And it's a quarter of an inch of misery. And John loves contrast. As he tells the story, remember he started out the book with contrasting dark and light. Jesus is light to the Jews who are unbelieving and others are dark. He he loves these great contrasts. And now he kind of captures his first contrast of of chapter 20. The old way and the new. You see, the old way has been focused on a Passover. It's been focused on sacrifices. It's been focused on lambs. It's been focused on all of the old things. But now, suddenly, there's a new day. No longer are we talking about the Sabbath day. No longer are we talking about Saturday. The old way is gone. Now we're going to pick up a new day. And it's going to be a running theme through the rest of the scriptures. It happens now on the first day. If you're actually looking at the the print edition of my Bible, if you skip to the next column over, verse 19, you see he's highlighting again the evening of the first day. It's a totally new world. No longer is the world, the entirety of creation, oriented around Saturday. Everything has changed because everything is new. All of the holy days of the past have been absorbed and transformed into the holy day of the new. That's why we meet today. That's why we didn't have church yesterday. We're not Jewish anymore. He's been resurrected. We meet on his day, his resurrection day. And historically, that's how the church has viewed Sunday. This is our holiday, our holy day, because it's resurrection day. This is the day where everything was transformed, where everything was made new. John doesn't stop the story with just a calendar change. He picks up with the women, the faithful women, the multitude of faithful women. Again, there are many things 
that you can kind of make fun and poke fun of the disciples about, and I love to do so. They're just like me, and it makes me feel good because I'm in good company. The women, we cannot. They are fabulous. And here he picks up with a group of women. We know it's a group from the other Gospels. He hones in specifically on Mary Magdalene, and they get up early on Sunday morning. After having had worship on Saturday, that had to have been the worst worship service ever for them. Here we are worshiping the God that we thought we'd met in the flesh, and now he's dead, and I'm so confused. And they get up that Sunday morning while it's still dark. They wander out to the garden. By the time they get there, the sun is coming up, and you get this just tremendous interaction as the sun is rising in the middle of the garden, and you're like, man, it is a different day. They stumble into the garden, and and John just says it in the most understated fashion. Oh, yeah, by the way, the tomb was open. Oh, oh no. Oh, the tomb is open. Oh, that's a problem. I mean, how bad do they hate him? They hated him enough to to murder him? Do they hate him enough now to steal his body? Are we going to go back into Jerusalem and, like, find him hanging somewhere? Like, what are they going to do with it? How bad is it? John neglects to mention the angels and all of that conversation. Instead, scoping in not on the the women as much, but to call attention to a major event that's going to follow. He's going to, at this point, get personal. No longer kind of tell you the story of Jesus in the abstract, but to tell you the story of Jesus in the concrete. He now switches from the story out there to this is what my experience is. Mary Magdalene runs back to the houses, and it's a great kind of, you see this, he builds the tension. She goes running back. Where's the first place you're going to go? Well, you go to the leader's house, you go to Simon Peter's house. And you get this impression, like she goes sprinting to to his house, and Peter's like, yeah, yeah, sure. We know from the other Gospels, he doesn't really believe her. So she kind of rouses him, okay, early in the morning, he's a wreck, and drags him over to John's house where Jesus' mother is, remember, and is like, no, seriously, the body's not there. And John and Peter both don't believe her. You get this sentence in verse 2 from, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, we don't know where they've laid him. Ah! As John tells it in 3 and 4, she gathers Peter and gathers John and this kind of great moment where they're strolling together toward the tomb. And then they're walking briskly together toward the tomb. And then they're running toward the tomb. And then they're sprinting toward the tomb. It builds in tension as it goes until you get to the point where, verse 4, they're both running together, but the younger disciple outruns the older. Not a surprise. And he reaches the tomb first, and you get this kind of gripping moment where John gets there, and you can probably picture him doubled over, breathing heavy, looking around, going, the tomb is open. He glances in. The grave clothes are not right. There's not a body in them. And he's just heaving and breathing and sucking wind and going, what on earth has happened? And then verse 6, we see classic Peter, Peter of all Peters, just perfectly captured comes running up and doesn't stop and goes directly into the tomb. 
And in the tomb, John is very specific as to what he sees there. And it's to tell us something very important. He looks and he sees the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. He, he walks into a tomb, Peter does, that is decently and in order. We know Jesus is Presbyterian. <laughs> All joking aside, though, there's a significant note to be had here. He walks in, and the, the linens are laying there, and the face cloth, the head cloth, is wrapped and neatly folded on the side. If you were perhaps in a coma and came out of your coma to find that you had been wrapped head to foot in wraps, what would the condition of the tomb be when you got out of your wraps? If you claustrophobic people, how would you handle it just having your fingers wrapped shut? (laughs) The place would be disaster, would it not? The idea of like, oh, get me out, get me out, get me out, get me out. And instead, he's actually highlighting specifically for us what happens as Jesus dies. His resurrected body is no longer bound by the same rules that ours are. And so these 75 pounds of spices and wraps, he just vanishes through. And that giant head wrap that would have kept his head from you know, lolling on the sides or whatever. And the face covering is not just left there but neatly and properly disposed of in the side. This is the tomb of a person who was not freaking out to get out of. This is not the person who's like panicking because they've been locked in a dark tomb and oh yeah, by the way, they've been wrapped head to toe. I'm sorry, I've been trapped in a cave. You lose your mind a little bit. This is not that guy. This is the portrait of somebody who found themselves in the dark and was fully in command. Neat little nugget of detail, but it, it clues us into what's happening in the resurrection is that Jesus is in charge. And the way that the very way it happens is declaring Jesus wins, Jesus wins, Jesus wins. And verse eight is the climax of the entire passage, actually. And the other disciple, John, the one who had reached the tomb first, and this is the changing point of all of human reality, and he went in, and he saw, and he believed. And John is, in essence, at this point, telling you his testimony. He's telling you his membership story. He's telling you how his life was altered. He's already a Christian, but this is the moment where he realizes Jesus is raised from the dead. I love it. It's so intimate. He explained, look, I I walked into the tomb. I saw the grave clothes there. And the whole story suddenly made sense. All of those passages, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 110, all of those portrayals of the resurrection of the servant of God, it makes sense now. And he believes. 
And it explains why his belief is so significant. Verse 9, as yet they hadn't understood the scripture. They knew the Old Testament was talking about the Messiah, but they didn't get what it would be like. They kept looking for a guy who was going to overthrow Rome. They, they missed that the Messiah is going to suffer and he's going to die and he's going to be raised. And suddenly it makes sense. And I love the, the skip that he makes between verses 9 and 10. Oh, and then they went back to their homes. What was that conversation like when they got out of the tomb? Peter doesn't get it yet. And John's like, no, seriously, you know why he's not here, right? Peter's like, what? He's alive. Hang on, what? Think about it. The scriptures tell us he's alive. It tells us that he's going to be raised from the dead. And, and imagine the sermon that John is preaching to Peter right there at the mouth of the tomb. We've been missing it all along. We've known he was going to die. We should have known he was going to be raised from the dead. But it all makes sense now. And then the disciples went back to their homes. And I found that verse to be unbelievably interesting as I was kind of reading and thinking through this. Like, why go back to your homes? And you think about it, you're like, well, one, what else would you do? But for John, it actually makes more sense. Because his trip home has to be the most enjoyable trip of his entire life. As he gets to burst into his own house and say, Mary, your son is alive. How fun is that conversation? That baby boy you've been crying for for the last two days? Oh yeah, by the way, he's not dead because death is not strong enough to hold him. We've been missing it in the scriptures all along. Let me tell you the prophecies that God gave in the past. Let me tell you how your son has kept them. That angel who told you at the very beginning he wasn't lying. We know it's true. And as John is telling the story, you have to remember, he's been writing this book for kind of, in essence, a specific agenda. We're going to get to that in just a couple of weeks. But it's specifically so that, if you skip to 31, I guess, at the end of the book, end of this chapter, I mean. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, he's telling this story and telling it specifically again so that the listener is called to think about it. What am I going to do with the resurrection of the dead? What am I going to do with the fact that Christ could not be contained by death itself? I mean, the fact that he's trapped in a tomb in the dark and the stone is not kind of really rolled away. It's knocked out. It's like he walked up to it and just pushed, and the whole thing was like, which is fantastic because if you think about it, what we know from Acts, he didn't even need to do that in the first place. He could have walked straight through the wall in the first place. And you, then you have to kind of stop and think for a second. Okay, now wait a minute. Now this is fun to think about. Why did he even open the tomb in the first place? Because he didn't need to. Why? So the disciples would look, so they would come and see, so they would believe. Why is he doing this? It's for our belief. So our faith would be strengthened, so that our obedience would be encouraged, so we would believe. 
So in the same spirit of what John is doing, in the same spirit of what Christ is doing, I would ask you, what are you doing with your belief? As you read God's Word, it's calling you to examine your belief. Do I trust? Do I obey? Am I committed to the Lord? Do I believe? And I recognize there are categories of people in the room. There are some that you hear that question and you go, yes, I do. This is the the song of my heart. This is the story that is my delight. Yes, I do. Glory, hallelujah. Please never let that excitement die. Nurture it. Fan that little flame so that the, the burning zeal of God continues to grow in your heart. I do recognize that there are some in the room that are going to say, yes, I believe that, but honestly, if I'm going to be true, it's grown a little bit cold. In fact, actually, when I think of the promises of God, I I hear, remembering the the old phrase, a, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, and I think that probably describes my faith a little bit more. It's like a, a, a lily or a reed that's been mashed really hard and the, the, you know, it's kind of wilting and withering and looks like it's dying. And Jesus, the master gardener, is like, no, I can heal that. Or a, a fire that's been blown down to just that little, tiny, little glowing red ember. And you think, oh, well, that's it, and it's gone. But you know, somebody who's a master with fire can nurture that and grow that back into a flame. And maybe that's your situation. And if that's you, if you find yourself described saying, man, I, I feel bruised. I feel snuffed out. I, I feel smoldered. I feel like I'm just kind of, ah. Remember, the word's designed so that you will believe. It's designed to strengthen you. It's designed to encourage you. It's designed to nurture you. Go back to the word. Go back to Christ. Ask for his help. Ask for his strength. Ask for his spirit to lift you up. I also recognize we got a full room. It means likely I got people in here that are in their heart of hearts going, you know what, actually, if I'm going to be truthful, I know I don't believe. Not yet. And those are the key words the not yet. And for those of you that fall in that category that I'm not sure what to do with this yet, I would simply say be reminded of what John has been telling us from the very beginning. That this story of the light of life, this God who is the resurrection and the life, this one who is the truth, has for a specific purpose stepped inside time and space. Lived as a poor homeless carpenter, died an unjust death and now has obliterated death itself. Why? So that our sins might be forgiven. It's as simple as that. In obedience to his father, he goes to forgive sins. And there's no other way to get rid of the evil things that we've done, those things that bother our consciences, the the things that we know were wrong. There's no other way to take them away than to believe in Christ and to receive His forgiveness. The resurrection is designed to nurture belief. The very way Jesus does it Himself is to promote that. This declarative statement that He has won. 
And I'll make one other application very quickly and very briefly. John here is the first of many to kind of describe the new orientation of the life of the Christian. You see, God's people have for thousands of years at this point been oriented around a sacrificial system, oriented around a Saturday, oriented around a hope that maybe one day would come. All of God's people for thousands of years have been oriented around a future hope. And the reorientation takes place here in chapter 20. It's continued in chapter 20. It's picked up in the book of Acts. And the whole church now is not reoriented entirely around a future hope. But reoriented around a past one. That every Sunday... We gather together as God's people a day designed to remind us His promises have been accomplished in the past. It's done. It's been an exciting week for Tom and I. We were the ones who were able to go to Presbytery. Chad unfortunately had a job. He didn't get to make it. All week, in fact, actually the last two weeks... All of my emotions have been spent looking forward to the possibility of a loan for the building. Thursday changed everything. Because I don't look forward to a $45,000 check. I look past. I don't have to spend my days hoping, well, uh, maybe the Presbytery will give us money. Maybe we'll have something that we can use to purchase a building. Maybe, 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 maybe. Now is it? No. No. It's already done. The business is concluded. It's been accomplished. It's in our minutes. All we have to do now is ask for it. The money's waiting. You see, that's the reality of the Christian life. No longer looking forward, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe. No, it's happened. It's accomplished. It's past tense. All we have to do now is ask. Ask and you will receive. Knock and you will find. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. The Lord Jesus will graciously give all things. You see, the, the pressure is put on us to marvel in gratitude at what God has done. To find joy in his resurrection, to find joy in his current work, to know that even now all of his promises are yes and amen and the Lord Jesus, they're, they're past tense promises. They've already been accomplished. We just don't have all of the benefits yet. Christ conquered everything in the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that death could not contain Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection. Because he was raised, so will we be. We look forward to that day. In Christ's name, amen.